0: welcome to the man who was scared to death a brand new audio documentary from the master of mortality mr philip oven a man who has thought about not existing every day since the age of 12 and has even seen an existential therapist to come to terms with dying in these recordings we speak to people who deal with death as part of their daily jobs to see if their views of existence have changed over the years as they try to help philip come to terms with his own today we talk to deb lamore a funeral celebrant Please note, these recordings took place before Covid, if you can imagine such a time.
1: What I started to do at the age of eight, I went to church. I wanted Mm -hmm. to have a look at um, spirituality and religion. I didn't know there was anything other than Christianity when I was little. My dad was an Irish Protestant. My mum was an English Church of England. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have religion in our house. Um, We lived in Dorset. uh, And so, yeah, I used to take myself to church at the age of eight. I didn't want to sit in Bible classes. I wanted to go in church and uh, I used to go every week to the edge about 12 until we moved away from the area and just loved being inside the church and I still do. I still love going inside churches and sacred places and feeling that connection with oneness for me. It was a connection with oneness. After that, I sort of lost touch with um, seeking it Really, the age of 12 to about 18.
0: So, actually, that's so so saying your teenage years, then you wouldn't really think about death very often or just you sort of came to the end of that cycle you feel at the time
1: no death was very much within um, my thinking because I whoever I made friends with they either had a death of their granny their auntie their mum a particular I moved to a place at the age of 12 I moved to Brecknell in in Berkshire and I became friends with a girl that lost her mum in a tragic hit-and-run accident and so I would take her to church Every couple of months, we would go, let's go to church. And we'd just sit in there and just enjoy the service. And whoever I talked to would always be around death and dying.
0: That's very sad. So do you think, I mean, obviously you can tell us more as an adult, but do you think this, like, it almost felt like it followed you a little bit? Because, I mean, personally speaking, I didn't have any... Um, I think yeah, all my grandparents were dead when I was very yeah, young. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. And I never, uh, never luckily, touched wood, ne- never really lost anyone until I was an adult, so do you think because, do, you, do you, is there something that was following you around, you know, that you were always destined to be obsessed with this and look into this?
1: I, I don't know whether, maybe a bit of both, I was following it and it was following me, maybe, yeah. Yeah, certainly at school, when I did, in my secondary school, I used to love religion and um, become obsessed with the, with the RE teacher, Mr. Davis. He was just lovely. And um, and I used to always get a really good school report from him because I was very actively involved in listening and paying attention and finding out what other religions were all about.
0: So presumably, cutting kind to of chase, you do believe in an afterlife or a yes. God of some description. Yes. Okay, um, so um, in terms of when you became an adult, how have you... You know, how's your career centred around this subject?
1: I started off being a nursery nurse Mm -hmm. and very much connected to to small children that were from either um, different backgrounds or religious backgrounds and very much connected and really used to like to understand what their faith was all about so I could help them when I was a nursery nurse, help them in the classroom. Um, I moved to Germany when I was... I married at 18... Um, had my son at 19, and we moved to Germany at the age of 20. Wow, that's a big three years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I pack a lot in very quickly. <laughs> and I w- moved to Germany. And we moved to a place called Osnabrück. It was our first um, station. And Osnabrück is the army camp and the headquarters, um, housing quarters, were built on concentration camps. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, so we were told not to dig in the gardens or anything like that. So it still was there, and... You know, um, spiritual things would happen, ghostly unexplained things would happen to other people. Not necessarily to me, Yeah. but I was always aware of other people saying that, you know, things would move around the house.
0: I mean, funnily enough, we've had other conversations during this series. Um, For me, I'd love ghosts to exist simply because it would give some indication that something happens after death. Because as I said, my fear really lies in not existing with everything else going on along forever and ever and ever without you being involved than it does yeah the act of you know uh, you yeah, know the actual act of dying so ghosts would be a, uh, would be brilliant i mean obviously they're not always yeah. good but yeah. at least it shows you that something else is out there i mean is that something you you, you follow you believe in
1: the experience i've had mm. yeah up to date absolutely when i was in germany i didn't see any ghosts but i had that feeling my children were always awake every night and my my daughter particularly would have night terrors. And and I think she used to sense things because it was, wasn't was in... We also moved to Nuremberg, And Nuremberg is where they had the, um, well, yeah, yeah. the Nuremberg trials. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was a lot more sensitive there. We did have a lot more activity in other buildings. We had um, a lot more, they would say, poltergeist activities. Again, in my building, we didn't. I can't say that I've seen anything, but my daughter and my son would have night terrors and wake up every night screaming I mean every single night okay. while we were lived there and we lived there two years
0: so if, if I mean we're just sort of going on a tangent here but I mean this is the one thing that, that does baffle me like if ghosts obviously do exist then what's the purpose if I know there's been lots of theories you know like souls that haven't you know are in limbo until they satisfy an action and funny enough I was reading something about the sixth sense today um, I think it's like 20 year anniversary and very similar kind of story that yeah. everyone But then it points out that, of course, why wouldn't everyone be a ghost at some point? And so, what's what's your view on that?
1: I think my view on that is that uh, we all have a consciousness that's bigger than our body Mm -hmm. and uh, that's what lives on and I think that's what we can pick up. I didn't know back then but now with my learning we have a consciousness and I can pick up on people's consciousness as an intuitive minister which we will get to in a little bit I can pick up on the deceased one when I work with them to create their funeral and two I can pick up on them before they actually pass. Okay, so, so I know the clients that are coming to me before they actually oh, pass. Oh wow, well, that would be quite, yeah. that's
0: quite useful. I wish I knew that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so is it, I mean, are we talking about what commonly be called a soul here? Is that kind of, yeah. or do you not like using that word? Uh,
1: whatever is comfortable for you, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, um, I might use the word God, soul, essence, consciousness, intuition, whatever, spirit, um, and it's whatever feels right to the person I'm talking with.
0: So some form of individuality that is just yours, yeah. Essentially, that yeah. you own or you know is yeah. in you, and that that lives on afterwards. Is this is this what, is this I, what I, the theory I, is?
1: I, I th- yes, eternal. For oh. me, it's eternal. Okay. Yes, it lives on in a different form. Yeah, that's for me. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, I'd love to believe it as well. So, yeah. um, how do you reconcile that with say what happened before? So, before you existed, presume the soul is it like waiting? to be housed or do they pass on between people or
1: see I used to believe that we came into this lifetime for a learning and we had a contract and there was destiny and you're destined to meet that man you're destined to have those children I don't necessarily believe that now for me I think um, I had a conversation with a friend in Jersey actually we went and did all the Jersey tour and that's why this conversation came up and she said to me, she said, you know, what, what is your thinking on a contract? And um, and I said, I don't believe that we come in for, a, we have destiny anymore. I believe right. that we create it. And uh, she said, oh, well, I don't agree that. She said, I think we all have a contract. We all have this learning. And I said, okay, so if you believe in karma, so she suggests. And I said, do you believe that karma then can go into another lifetime? She said yes. I said, so why can't our consciousness our agreements our destiny all just keep going and going and going and so she oh I haven't thought about it (laughs) so for me that's my understanding now is that we have a soul that travels a journey yeah it has a blueprint of everything that we've gathered over our lifetime
0: the big question from what you're saying about this soul is is it created I mean it would sort of make sense to me if there was a higher being or something more divine. I can sort of understand why we'd want to, or it would be created this soul inside us that give us some kind of journey. Or is it just life itself? That's what life is.
1: For me, there is a higher being. There is a higher, majestic consciousness that watches over all that is. Is a oneness that all that is. But I believe we can create the life that we want.
0: Within, with within the template or within this.
1: within Within whatever we want. You know, I've I've done that law of attractions in there. You know, I don't believe that we're destined to meet one person. We're destined for this. I believe we create that with our thoughts and our experiences that we've gathered over the years. My thought process when I was 20, certainly different what it is now. Yep. And, you know, years ago, I would have thought, oh, yeah, no, I'm here to meet one soulmate. I'm having these two children. That's a job I'm going to do. Now I don't believe that because of the experience experiences I've been through that we create the life that we want to create
0: so something very interesting I found I know you've wrote a little uh, bit about your character but I like the fact that you say you started wanting to find the answers you're not scared anymore when
1: I worked in the operating theaters I just started well I I found meditation Mm -hmm. through having migraines my whole journey has been on the dream I had and having migraines to find a solution for my migraines. So I've done everything. You can you know, counseling NLP like you yeah. to try and solve the migraines. Oh, right. okay. The more I step into my spiritual awareness, the less my migraines are, which okay. is interesting. But that's also had an understanding. When I worked in the operating theatres, so I joined a meditation group, yeah. thinking it was like a yoga meditation group. And when I got there, it was people sat round with a candle in the middle and I'm thinking well this doesn't look like yoga <laughs> and so I thought well I can't leave it was a shamanic uh, meditation circle okay. and after one session of them doing our meditation and calling in the spirits and things like that I was hooked so I thought ah. Oh, This is another way of researching. So that then led on to continuing the meditation group, which then opened up my awareness and consciousness to what is bigger than what I am. So I'd be, say, at the computer, or I would help in the patient uh, be um, aligned onto the table, and I would see a flash of light. And I mean like a floodlit flash. And I'd look at other colleagues and go, did you see that? And they go, no. And I, for a long time I never said anything. And then I remember um, speaking to one surgeon and I said, how was Mr... And um, they said, unfortunately, Deb, he died. And I went, oh, gosh. And they said, everybody dies within our theatre, Deb, because we are a cancer head and neck surgery. What we're doing is we're extending people's lives. We are not curing them. And that really then made me, well, what am I then witnessing with the light? And then through my um, meditation classes and and speaking with my mentor, what I understood was it was like the gateway, what I call a gateway, where the the veil opened and that was a time when the soul can exit. Right, okay. Um, And that's
0: before before that you think, that before the death?
1: Yes, oh right, yeah, yeah, that okay. would sometimes it would be six months to a year okay. before, because then I started following up the patient then to find out how they were only with the surgeon and so the more I was aware of the light opening in the theatres the more that I was aware that that was the gateway when the soul can leave because I don't feel that I um, I don't know everything, I'm just sharing what I ex- what Yeah, I've no, I, find it, yeah. I, like, I
0: love the idea actually of, the, of as you say the soul leaving before. I think we always have this image of like the, the moment you die, then that's it, you know, or your soul goes off to wherever or the afterlife. But I think
1: we get gate what I call gateways, I don't know what other people call it. Yeah, yeah. That you can exit at that time. And it comes at different times in your life. I wonder if lifetime. that's like a
0: choice available to you. If you're yeah. aware of that at the time it's okay, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna dip out now because yeah. frankly I know where this is going and yeah. maybe it has other jobs to do. Out of interest, um working in that sort of medical profession then, did you find most of, say, the doctors are operating the doctors, were they more of a non-spiritual attitude towards, you know, they were very yeah, well, they're medical, I, yes. so that this is what happens yeah, to the bo- human body. Yeah,
1: I would I would agree with that. There are our chaplains that you can go and talk to, um, and I did do a stint as a chaplain there, actually, volunteer chaplain, as an interfaith minister okay. to uh, to try and... Then speak to those patients that have had operations that are are on the end of life scenario, and I would I wanted to tap into those, but um, I didn't. I wasn't successful at the time.
0: So, so obviously you've spoken to a lot of people about this subject. a lot of times, what's the main theme that people, you know, talk to you about? I mean, is it much like myself? Is there a lot of people out there just fearing not being around anymore, more than you know the painful side of dying or the people you leave behind? It's I, have I think it, to say it myself a selfish, you know, a selfishness yeah. of, no, I want to keep going.
1: I think it depends what age you are, whether you've got an illness, whether it's a terminal illness, to how your your mind is set and your perception of what is true.
0: I was going to ask. I, yeah. I presume. I mean, I've always had that belief, and I've known a few people, not many in my time, that there is a sort of not a peace, but when you have an end date or, or, or an idea they seem to at least on the outside become far more at will with it yeah. a, and be able to make sort of more planning and you know sensible decisions is that something that you, you found as well the people that that I, have terminal illnesses
1: I think so um, I worked in a care home while I was training to be an interfaith minister and I did three years and I was actually a carer I I, was, um, I went on the ground <laughs> and doing my stuff, and I remember I just started working there, and it wasn't something that I particularly wanted to do, but it was flexible with be training and to be an interfaith minister. And I was working with one client, and um, this is slightly going off track, but I will yes, come ma'am. back to what you're you're asking. And I was thinking, oh, why am I here? Why am I working with old people? I don't want to work with old people. I want to work with younger people because that's what my training was going to be for. Yeah. And I uh, walked into a room and I asked that question, and very, very clearly in my head, a voice that was not mine said, you need to see them as all children, they are all children. And I thought, oh, actually, we are all children. We're just at a different age, and different stage. Yeah. So my mind shifted to what I was there to do. So I loved my job for three years. And I walked 150 residents. Okay. Across what I call the threshold, so when they had last breath until died, and I would probably say all 150 of them were at peace when they took last breath.
0: That's amazing. So it, d- but d-
1: it was at different stages, so it could have been weeks before, months before, hours. Before. So at some
0: point, they found yeah, a bit of inner peace.
1: Yeah, they seemed to. Yeah,
0: that's very interesting. So, um, what about the families then? You know, what? How did they? Because I mean. I suspect, obviously, the, the whole argument, you, you don't know you're dead because you don't wake up from it, might, well, might or might not be true, but yeah. it's the friends and family who seem to take it the worst because obviously they're the people that are left behind. Do you find that when people were older there was more of an acceptance? Because, I mean, that would make sense to me that you know, if you've lived a lot of your yeah. natural life, then it's probably going to be easier for people to cope.
1: I think in general, most people do have a level of quicker acceptance of their their father, their mum, um, passing on if they are of an age that they've lived. But I also would agree that the grief is still the same. Right. If they've died when they're 98 or whether they died when they were 70, to that child or your sibling, the grief is still the same in that moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You've mentioned the interfaith... Do you want to explain what that is?
1: It's, it's a training in London or New York, mm-hmm. and it's for um, people that do not want to just channel their ministry in just one faith. We are, we did a stu- a two-year course, and we study all faiths. Okay. Six major face, not all. That's a mm-hmm. lie. A two-year course, and you also train to be a spiritual counselor. wield that, and what they do is they strip away you <laughs> to the absolute core. So they find your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, um, your um, your fears, right. and then they counsel you to make you balanced in your thinking. Should do. Not everybody <laughs> yeah, is <laughs> cool. at the end, but most of them are. And then in a the second year, you look at ceremonies, so funerals. Um, weddings, baby blessings, that sort of right, thing, okay. and at the end of that, you get a choice whether you would like to be ordained as a reverend or mm-hmm. you just want to take that as a spiritual journey and go on. And so, I chose to take it as um, being ordained, and we were ordained in Notting Hill, actually, in church in the Notting Hill.
0: Oh my, well, So, what does what does yeah. that involve then? That just sounds utterly fascinating. It, it was me.
1: just an amazing. Um, it was a it's a two session thing. So, we went to Devon for a four day retreat. Okay. And you go totally vegan, and you have to wear white uh, throughout Which the is whole time. A so pure, yeah, very. Um purifying so mm-hmm. we did a lot of walk in the labyrinth inner work so it was also um, walk in the fire sort of things and then you do a day of complete silence and then you meet back up on the last of that day and then you say your vow which you create yourself, you write your own vow okay. that you're going to be saying to the God of your understanding and then the second part of that is in London where we came to Notting Hill, uh, I think it's called the Second Christ Church but don't quote me on that mm-hmm. again it's you where um, are white, and um, you all come together. And for, for each one's different; it depends who the tutor is and what they're studying, particularly. And uh, so we all came in on a Jewish horn, blowing. Okay. And you're all called in one at a time to say your vows, and then you're given what you call a stole, which you create yourself. Then you are blessed as a reverend from then on.
0: And so, what what is then? I can't call it a job, obviously, but you know, what's then the professional being a reverend? What what are you there to do?
1: Each person as an interfaith minister is a different journey. Right. For mine, it was about following funerals and death and dying and bereavement support. So that's the way that I took mine. Other people's do weddings and all sorts of things. Okay. Um, so for me, I wanted to then go on to be a funeral minister and and bereavement support, and that's what I've done.
0: And yeah. so I understand you work with families who either don't associate with one particular religion or maybe no religion at all. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I work, now I work as an intuitive minister because I blame all my learning through um, spirituality and psychic stuff I've now put together as a service I offer families. So I class myself as an intuitive wellness minister. And so I work with families who choose not to have a Christian minister. Okay. But a lot of them will put christianity in it so it could be the lord's prayer it could be um, a hymn that they want or a psalm that they want but there are a lot of families that don't want that so i create a totally unique service for them whether it's natural burial whether it's cremation or traditional burial
0: and the people that do the course presumably they would have had to or it would make sense for them to have some form of religious belief yeah I mean, because.
1: Absolutely. We all came from a religious understanding. In fact, a lot of them came from a, um, a Catholic background.
0: Well, I was about to ask yeah. actually, I mean, uh, have you ever faced any backlash from like Christians or, or you know, uh, that thing for doing would, the multi faith?
1: I would say so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I worked, um, I did voluntary work in a hospital. And I wanted to go on to do the chaplaincy work Mm -hmm. with the intention of working with people that are end of life. And I had two lovely ministers, one Catholic, one Baptist, and they took me into the office after 12 weeks and said, you know, we really think that you're loving, compassionate, you're really, really good with our patients, but we cannot offer you a position here because you're not of one faith. And I said, but isn't that what people are asking for? They're not asking for religion. They're asking for an understanding of what's beyond death for them. Exactly. And that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to to fix them. I'm not here to persuade them in any way. I'm here just to listen to them and explore the question.
0: Well, if I, I mean, not being religious myself, but one of the fundamental tenets of religion is to give peace, hope of an afterlife, as long as you'd hope, give sort of good lessons in how to be good human beings but ultimately you know there is always that thing at the end which you would hope would give people peace in their life if it's not going well so I'd find that quite surprising that you can't represent one and not represent another but then I'm coming from a completely unreligious background. I
1: wouldn't call myself a Christian I have Christian values.
0: Right interesting yeah I
1: have Christian values that I was brought up with when I'm working with my clients um, whether it was in the care home particularly or with my clients now I look at what their beliefs are what their faith background is and and i work with them what even what their culture is because sometimes the faith and the culture are very different so i try and adhere to what they believe in rather than what i believe in but if they do have an afterlife belief then i will bring that to the table i had a client that phoned me um, a few months ago now she said my dad has just lost my mum, they've been together since they were 15, um, and he's 98, he's deeply grieving. Can you come and see him as um, bereavement support? And I said, absolutely. Went to see this gentleman, and he was absolutely bereft, obviously. Yeah. He'd been with a donkey's years. But my intuitive side thought, actually, he's got a, a gateway to leave here if he wanted to. So I said and what what's your belief system? And he said, I don't have a belief system. I don't share belief of spirituality. I don't believe that it's an afterlife. And I said, OK, so can I hold that belief for you that when your time is ready, that your wife will greet you on the beach and she'll be 15 again and you can cross over and be with her. And he said, that's a lovely idea. So just hold on to that. So the next week the family called me and they said, Deb, he's now end of life. Can you come and see him, end of life capacity? So I went to see him. So I said to him, Murray, are you okay? And he was semi-conscious, wouldn't answer. So I went, okay. I said, Murray, what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna put my hand underneath your back and one on your heart. And I just did that. I said, all I'm doing is just sending you God's love. That's all I'm doing. And this man, 98, didn't have a spiritual belief, was semi-conscious, semi-unconscious, and he said, wow, I can feel heat coming through all of my body and I'm tingling. I said, okay, Murray. I said, if you can feel that, can you see a light? And he went, I can see a light. I said, can you see your wife? Is she standing there? And he said, yes, I can. I said, when you're ready, Murray, you go towards that light. I said, and your wife will be ready for you and all your family be there, your sister, your brother, whoever. I said, is that okay? And he went, that's okay. And I took my hands away, and I stayed there for another 20 minutes. He was completely quiet. I left the room, and his family called me 12 hours later to say that he passed. I don't know whether he saw that. I just know what I feel, and that's, you know, For me, I do see the loved one coming through when I was in the care home, and when I'm creating my funerals, I do see them step into the space where we are. I do feel them, I do connect to their consciousness. And for me, that is living beyond death.